Isabel A. Ortega, author of Ghost Squad and Witchlings. And I'm Kat Cho, author of the Fumio Duology and Once Upon a K-Prom. And this is Write or Die. Whee! Oh my goodness. Okay, so we, it's it's fall, Clarabelle. Did you know that? It's like truly fall now. It is. It's the other day I went for a walk in the morning and I was like, um, it's cold. <laughs> and I don't know what I expected. Like we like to like tomorrow is October as of the recording of this podcast. But like I was like, why is it cold? <laughs> I'm I, I had a similar moment where I like was I usually my I have a routine, right? Like when I go to bed, I, in the summertime, I turn on the air conditioning because I have window units. So I turn on the air conditioning in my bedroom mm. and then I go to brush my teeth so that by the time I come back to my bedroom, it's nice and cool. And I did it the other day and I came back to my bedroom and it was freezing cold. And I was like, why is it so cold? And I was like, oh, because I turn on the air conditioner and it's actually like 67 degrees outside. And so now it's like extra cold in my bedroom. And so the fact that I don't have to turn on the air conditioning is why I like noticed it's fall now, which I love. I love yeah, fall. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, I love it. I'm, I'm fully uh, thinking of like, how to take the most advantage of the fall this year mm. like um i've been doing this thing where i purposefully like when the when the trees turn green again like i i made sure i was like i want to notice when it happens like i want to notice how things change over and i don't want it to just take me by surprise mm-hmm. it's sort of like an exercise in being um present yeah totally and um and and I and I really like it, and I, I always feel like fall passes too quickly, and I think it's because it's a very quick season, like like for the things that we like to do, right? Like the leaves falling and like apple picking and all of that stuff. Like if you if you don't go quick enough, you can't do all the cool stuff because pretty soon it gets too cold in New York. But I've already gone apple picking, and I had like um, apple cider donuts, and I really want to enjoy fall this year. Yeah. Um, like make the most of it and and have a really fun time and watch a lot of like spooky movies and Mm -hmm. and and just enjoy it you know for sure my um my roommate and I started this um tradition I guess I mean we've only really lived together for two years now um but that's two falls in a row and uh we started a tradition of watching every spooky or fall feeling movie that like both of us have nostalgia for from like our childhood mm-hmm. and so like we made this like giant list when we first moved in together and we like got didn't get even get through the whole list the first year and then we keep adding movies too, like new movies um but it's such a nice little thing to do you know um and i really liked doing it it just like makes me feel like it's a, the season is special which to me it is i mean my birthday's in fall so it's always been special to me <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, no, I like your idea about like feeling present and like noticing the change and like leaves and stuff. I mean, I know it's special for us because we live in the Northeast and not everyone gets that. Yeah. Like living in Florida, I was like, leaves changing. What's that? I don't know her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. But I really love that. I, I, I've always felt like I love the fall, but I don't 100 percent 
like purposely take advantage of it as much as I can and I really want to make a point of doing that this year because I think it's great and I just want to find joy everywhere I can Mm -hmm. um, as much as I can because it's been really rough the you know past year and almost two years now and um, so I just want to find happiness and like be purposeful about the things that I do and just enjoy things and not put it off till later you know for sure do you know what's you know something really fun that's happening this fall it's fun and terrifying <laughs> i'm doing my first in-person what? event ah, yeah me too uh, next weekend oh my god it's gonna be so much fun but i'm also like like i'm cautiously optimistic but like back to in-person panels huh that's that's our that's what's happening yeah <laughs> yeah i mean the event that I'm, I think the events we're both doing are outdoors, yes. right? Is yours Mine's outdoors. outdoors. It's the Brooklyn yeah, Book so Festival. By the time this goes out, it'll yeah. have already happened. So I'm sorry, you guys, if, yeah. you, for, if you missed it. You missed it. Um, you missed but it. it's outdoors, yes. <laughs> and yours is outdoors, too. Yeah. Yeah, mine is also outdoors. Um, I'm really excited about it. And I guess we wanted to talk a little bit about, like, what it looks like to prepare for a panel. Because some of you haven't had the pleasure <laughs> yet. <laughs> Because you've been stuck inside and doing virtual events. Um, So I've done a bunch of events. I've been really lucky to uh, been able to do like panels and stuff like way before I I was a published Mm -hmm. author. Um, So it it can be a little scary the first time uh, that you do it, especially like if you're on the panel with someone who you really admire or nobody that you know I always find the panels where I'm with my friends are like the easiest for me to navigate Mm -hmm. um but I always try to find out beforehand like who's going to be on the panel with me um if there's a moderator that is not me I will ask if they have questions beforehand I'll ask like who the expected audience is like if it's at an event uh open to the public like do you expect children to be in the audience do you expect it to be adults like like what are you planning for right um and that's the like I think that's the extent of like the preparation that I do I don't I know other people do this maybe you do this cat but I don't read everyone's book that's on the panel with me <gasps> blasphemy like no I'll, I'll <laughs> I like I'll look them up I'll look every person up if I don't know them I'll look at what they uh right I'll um sometimes read a couple pages from their book but like sometimes it's really impossible to do that especially when you have a lot of events coming up mm-hmm. like you can't possibly read like 15 books you know in the span of like a couple of weeks I can't at least I'm a slow reader mm-hmm. but some people do do that do you do you read books in advance of panels I'm, I'm a slow reader too which is surprising because I was an editor <laughs> in a past life <laughs> um and that really affected my ability to edit multiple <laughs> books at a time I did it but it was a struggle um I when I first started doing panels I tried my best and and it didn't help or or like it's nice because when I first started doing panels, a lot of the panels, a lot of the events I was doing, they would send me copies of my co-panelist books. Like I remember mm-hmm. I got like a huge box of books for, I think it was like New York Comic Con or something. And it like, there was like arcs in there of people's next books. Like um, I got 
Adam Silvera's Infinity Sun arc, and that was like a hot commodity at the time, you know? So I was like, <laughs> oh man, I, I better read this so I earn it, right? Um, and so I would force myself to start reading them. And then, of course, I would always stress out because I never, ever, ever finished them before the panel came yeah. time to do. And so, um, so the, I, there's two things that I came up with that help. Well, three things. The first thing is I told myself, I don't need to read all the books, just like Clarabelle said, um, which mm-hmm. I think is truly is the case. Like you are not required to read every single book no, um, by panelists, by co-panelists. The second thing I do is that I just prioritize if I'm the moderator this idea of like mm-hmm. reading panelist books because I do think moderators have a slightly higher responsibility of like giving sure. everyone on the panel their moment and feeling like they're just as important as everyone else on the panel and at least that's what I like to do as a moderator I like everyone on the panel to feel taken care of um, by me and not to feel like lost in the shuffle because unfortunately I have been on panels either because they're so big or like there's like one big name on it where one or a couple of us have felt like, did I even answer any questions? Um, yeah. So I never want anyone to feel like that when I'm a moderator. So I always try to at least read all the um, summaries of the pers- of each person's latest or most upcoming book. Um, and then another thing I do if I really want to like ace the homework. <laughs> Um, (laughs) I'm I'm Asian and I must think of it as homework (laughs) is that I at least read the every Kindle sample so that is very yeah so you can Mm -hmm. go on to Kindle and I know Amazon's evil so I guess Barnes and Noble Nook or whatever and you can choose instead before you buy it you can choose send me a sample and they always send you a certain number of pages like the first chapter probably and so I just load up my kindle with those and i read every single sample sent to me and then at least i get a picture for like their author voice and like what kind of mood and atmosphere they're going for so then i can make questions this is still me being a moderator and i can make questions based off of what i read yeah i think that's very smart i will do uh something similar if i'm on a panel with other people or if i'm moderating I'll, i'll read a couple pages and i'll also um, this is only if I'm a moderator, but I feel like this can't hurt if you also want to sort of talk about each other's book in a way that's more of a conversation. Um, I will look at other interviews that the author did, like other blog posts or interviews and see like what they've been asked and answered in the mm-hmm. past. Because sometimes if I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes if I have an interview, if I'm reading an interview, I will have like a natural follow up question that the interviewer doesn't ask (laughs) so like i'll be curious (laughs) i'll be curious about something that's like not answered in the interview Mm -hmm. so like i i feel i feel like having those things during um in the back pocket of your um like your preparation kit when you're on a panel can't hurt because also moderators are not always great Mm -hmm. and sometimes there isn't a moderator on the panel and the conversation has to flow well and if you don't know each other and if it's like five shy authors um then it can be hard to like keep the conversation rolling so there also always has to be like one or two people who like are sort of like keeping everything like flowing in a natural way even if they're not like the official moderator Mm -hmm. and i always try to have some some tidbit of information about people or something that like i can find out during the uh during the panel and ask them that i'm curious about that will open up the floor to like 
uh, more conversation from all the panelists. And I think that's really fun because my favorite panels to watch are the ones that feel like a big conversation mm-hmm. between everyone where it's not like everyone waiting for their turn, but it's more like just like everyone just freely speaking together. I think those are like way more fun. Yeah, I agree. And and so usually I will suggest that because like, you know, sometimes they'll if there is a moderator or even if it's just like a group of you together um, there'll be an email chain ahead of time sending questions around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll always suggest like, I love pre-made questions. So down for this, like, but I'm also down for us, like just flowing with each other in conversation. But actually recently I suggested that and um, a conversation came out of that, which I think is really valid. And it was the fact that a few people on the panel, myself included, actually um, are neurodiver- were neurodiverse or neurodivergent, I mean. Um, And, you know, and we all had different types of neurodivergence. Um, So some people were like, honestly, I actually do need the pre-made questions for like how my brain works and my neurodivergence, is is that okay? And we had a conversation being like, of course. Like, and it was like a really easy, I mean, not easy, but it was a really good conversation to have ahead of time because I think that like, we have the best intentions like the idea of like trying to make it a conversation is always the best intentions no one's trying to like push anyone out but mm-hmm. also to be aware ahead of time that there are certain people on the panel who are like for me yeah. i need it this way and to be cognizant mm-hmm. of that and sensitive to that i think is is really important so um i do always appreciate the pre-emails um so that we can kind of like figure out what's best fit the best fit for every even if it's not neurodivergence it could just be personality traits right like everyone has a different personality Mm -hmm. preference um i think that's really nice um but i will say like so as someone who has adhd and like i i mean if you guys don't know at this point listening to these pre-chats i ramble (laughs) and i go on tangents and like where have you been if you don't know that about me Mm -hmm. um This is their first episode. If this is your first episode, then you are forgiven. (laughs) But um, so I totally understand the idea of like wanting to stay on track um, because you only have like an hour for a lot of these panels and I never want to detract from other people's time. Um, But I will also say that, you know, if you're, if you think that, if you I think that you need to just like have a pre-written answer that you recite because you're nervous or because of um, social anxiety or because it's how you've always seen it. Um, I can promise you that like with time and practice, it actually gets easier and easier for you to kind of do a more go with the flow method. And that's what I needed too. You know, I I did first start off like writing down every single answer to pre-question sent questions. Um, and I still kind of write myself notes, um, but I think it's kind of like this, it's, it's this mental hurdle that a lot of us have to get over of being like, even though you are presenting, doesn't mean you have to be overly formal. It's not like when you're in class, mm-hmm. right? And you're like, right. I read this book. The book was about this. Like, <laughs> you know? um, it's, it's supposed to be fun and and like presenting this fun aspect of your book or yourself to an audience so um it just takes time and practice and that's my advice (laughs) yeah for sure and and that's a really great point like you definitely want to make sure that you're catering to 
everyone who's on a panel and making sure everyone is comfortable. And I think that's one of the hardest things, right? Because what everyone needs can be different. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think when you're moderating a panel, that that can be just so hard. But that's why I don't like moderating panels. <laughs> <laughs> panels are hard. If they're inviting me to a thing, I'm like, are you going to ask me to moderate? <laughs> because <laughs> if so, the answer is oh, no. no. I'll moderate sometimes. Like, I'm moderating a spooky panel of YA writers uh, um, in October mm-hmm. for, like, a Halloween uh, panel. And I'm really excited about that because I love spooky things. And it's all really great author so like once in a while I'll do it especially if it's like you know it makes sense because I'm like a middle grade spooky writer moderating like YA authors Mm -hmm. um but for the most part the answer is no (laughs) (laughs) but that's the thing too is like that's another thing I will say to be prepared for this stuff is to know your your limits and your comfort zones too Mm -hmm. and and allow yourself to say no yeah And I think that my number one um, sort of like interview and panel uh, tip is always the same. And it's that once you're done answering a question, just stop talking. (laughs) Like, um, because here's the thing, like not in a mean way, but like when I was a reporter, that was one of the tactics that we used when we were doing like an interview where we were trying to get information out of someone. You, you let them answer something and then you just don't speak and nine out of ten times a person is going to continue to talk when you don't follow up with the next thing Mm -hmm. which what ends up happening is you feel like you have to fill in that blank space but once you're done you're done right and I think that when you're nervous, there is a tendency to like overspeak as well. And if you're nervous on a panel, it's so much more likely for that to happen. Um, but like there are there are a couple things that you can do to like co- combat that. Right. Like you can say, like, what do you think to one of the other panelists and be like, and yeah, that's that's pretty much my answer. <laughs> Just something like that, where it's like you're putting a stamp on it. It's sealed. It's done. I, I finished. finished. <laughs> like, next. next person. Thank you. you next. Um, <laughs> right. And I think that that can eliminate a lot of the sort of like scariness Mm -hmm. of like someone who's afraid of rambling right like I'm gonna I'm gonna finish when I'm done saying what I have to say and then I'm gonna put a stamp on it I'm gonna put a a period on this and it's somebody else's turn to speak or it's the moderator's turn but I am done and like not my responsibility anymore this question um and I think that can be like a comforting thing too Mm -hmm. because you don't ever have to sort of like if you did prepare sort of like set answers, then you don't have to worry about being on your toes as much, you know? Um, and, and that's a way that you can also direct the conversation in a way that is comfortable for you. Uh, yeah, totally. And I, and I will give one um, piece of advice because most of our advice is just like m- mental state, mind state. Um, but I will give one advice about how to answer questions because this was a piece of advice that was given to me by my sister who gives keynote speeches all over the world. And so she's talking to like rooms of like 20,000 people and she has to like keep their attention for like 45 minutes to an hour. I'm like, who talks that long? Anyway, um, and this really stuck with me because she said, this is not just for panels, it's for interviews at all about you as an author. Um, when When you answer an interview question, try to tie it to something that's personal to you Um, because then it's uniquely your answer 
and it's and it's interestingly about you and not just like a general like I listen to movie soundtracks when I write you could say I listen to movie soundtracks when I write because you know I really grew up loving watching these really cinematic movies and that's how stories come to me when I think of stories and it just like gets me in that mindset it's how my brain works when I write my fantasy novels I have to expand blah blah blah. like just make it a personal thing instead of just a flat answer and then It'll accomplish two things. One, it lets people get to know you, which me- which might make them want to know what what kind of a book you would write, like a person like you would write. And then the second one is that even if someone else has the same base answer as you, they can still give their answer because it's going to be different because their personal reason will probably be different. And so you're not uh, like the thing that I always feel bad is if I like feel like I'm taking another person's answer <laughs> um, and then they don't get a chance to speak. They're like, oh, you said what I was going to say. Which happens. Don't feel bad about it. But like if there's a chance for you to be like, well, it's different because like my reason is because growing up in Florida, it was like this and you grew up somewhere else. So it's probably different for you. Um, So that's just like a little a little tip. If you're like, how do I expand this answer? So it's not like just me saying, yeah, I would I do that, too. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And and I think I've seen that happen as well. Like I I've been on panels where people will like verbatim repeat what I just said. And I think that happens out of like nervousness. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes you do relate so much to what the other person's saying that it's almost like you can't think of your own thing anymore. Oh. It's um but I think in that case, like having the pre made answers can be really helpful and making them specific to you, I think is really really smart as well yeah because i again another thing is that if you pre-write your answer and it's vague and generic and then someone answers your answer then you're you're caught in the headlights if you're a person who needs to have pre-thought of it and you're like oh crap well what do i say now but if your pre-thought out answers are all so personal that there's no way someone else can take that full answer maybe they can take a part of it but not your personal anecdote you can still use your you can mm-hmm. still use part of what you wrote down already um yeah. so it's a little cheat <laughs> or tip <laughs> yeah um i think the the last thing that i would say is more of like a fun thing that like you don't really need but i really liked like i found a lot of times after panels people would come up and talk to the panelists mm. and um they usually ask you like where can people follow you online and stuff but like not everybody writes it down and a lot of people ask you when they come up to you so um one thing that you can do if you don't especially if you don't want to get business cards printed because i feel like you don't really need business cards nowadays mm-hmm. um is you can get like these little standing uh, things to put next to you like during the panel or during your signings that have like all your social media stuff or like a QR code um, on them. So when people come up to you after, you could just be like, oh, here's all my social media if you want to follow me and stuff. And it's a fun way to like gain more followers that will probably follow you for a while because I found that when I meet people at, at like events like they 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 follow me like forever <laughs> like they never leave yeah because they like met you in person it's, it it's mm-hmm. more meaningful yeah. yeah I agree with that yeah. for sure so that could be that could be like a fun thing and sometimes people are shy and don't want to ask you and it's easier for them to just like go up and like take a quick picture of mm-hmm. it and then like run away <laughs> so I feel like it's a it's a good way to like to to make it easier for people to follow you online and to see where they can like keep up with you and like buy your books even if they're not going to be for sale wherever you are Mm -hmm. so um so yeah those are a couple tips i hope everyone um 
it has a safe and good conference season <laughs> if that's what's actually <laughs> happening stay safe right yeah no definitely um <laughs> everyone stay safe but have fun this is so great that like we're gonna see people we're gonna see other people's faces I know. it's so f- readers i know i it's just, it's gonna be really really cool i'm very excited yeah for sure This week, our guest is Emiko Jean. When Emiko was not writing, she is reading. Most of her friends are imaginary. Before she became a writer, she was an entomologist. Ooh, fancy name for bug catcher. A candle maker, a florist, and most recently, a teacher. Yay, we love teachers. Uh, She lives in Washington with her husband and children, unruly twins, and she loves the rain. Hi, Emiko, how are you? I'm so good. So, Emiko, uh, if you could tell us about uh, your publishing uh, journey, how did you get your agent? How did you get started on writing? Just tell us everything. Yeah. So um, from listening to previous pod episodes, I know that you guys always ask this question and I had to actually go back <laughs> and like figure it all out. <laughs> it feels like since the pandemic started, like time is nebulous and has no meaning. And so I've lost track of things. But um So I went back into my emails and I looked up when I started querying for agents and it was way back in 2011. And um, I think that was like at the height of like the YA paranormal uh, craze. And so I, of course, had written a book about fairies and werewolves and vampires and all that kind of stuff. And it's so bad. Amazing. (laughs) So bad. Um, (laughs) And I was like, I'm, it's like, I'm going to try to publish this. I did like very little revision on it. Um, and I think I, you know, I, com- I committed like the ultimate and I like queried like a hundred agents, like one after the other with just like a form query letter. Like oh, I no. didn't, even, I didn't even personalize it. I was like, dear prospective agent. <laughs> and, oh no. Uh, <laughs> And so I, there was like no bites, not even like any nibbles. Um, and then I decided to uh, go like the independent publishing route uh, and started to query uh, indie publishers that were open sub- to submissions. Um, and most of them were just e- like ebook publishers. Um, and I got a bite from a, a publisher and I parlayed that into getting an agent. But she Ooh. was more of a schmagent. <laughs> um, no. Yeah, um, um, so for people who might not know, can you tell us what a schmagent is? Yeah. So I don't actually even have, let me, I don't actually have like a clear understanding of it. I, the way that I define it and the agent, the schmagent that I was working with was someone that um, they're not really with a reputable uh, firm. And this agent mm. also had um, uh, aspirations of becoming an author herself. And okay. uh, so okay. she, yeah, what's your definition of a schmagent? Oh, um, so, f- so for me, I think it's, it's the, the first part of someone who's not reputable, yeah. someone who um, is probably doing unethical things yeah. or things that are against their client's best interest. Mm-hmm. I think, I think the, definition can change for everyone 
Uh, mm -hmm. But I think those are like the the core ones, right? Because if someone's doing that, like there's no forgiving that. There's no forgiving you not doing what's in your client's best interest mm -hmm. what, or doing like sketchy things or yeah. lying to your client. Yeah. Um, all of those things are like hard no's, like no, 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 never acceptable in like any situation. Yeah. So yeah, definitely I, a yeah. Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I was going to say, no, I agree. And I think like the, the, um, what you brought up was, you know, kind of probably the reasons that they did just, they did unsavory or shady things. Um, even mm -hmm. though it's, it is possible for an agent to also be an author and still be a good agent, but your mm -hmm. agent just happened to do shady things because of her other dream. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't necessarily the part that she was a writer as well. It was more that um, there were things like communication breakdowns that happened. And then mm -hmm. she also negotiated um, for me. Uh, she wanted 20%, which the industry standard for an agent is 15. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there were kind of those little things. Um, and so, but I signed on with her to represent my paranormal book. And uh, she said she sent it out to publishers and then I would, uh, she didn't email me back. And so I would wait months and months and months. Um, and while I was waiting, I started to work on another novel called uh, We'll Never Be Apart, which ended up being my debut. Um, once I had finished that, I submitted it to her and it took her a very long time to read. Um, and she got back to me and, and, you know, said that the novel was good and um, she was going to submit it to publishers. But then I was having second thoughts about our relationship mm -hmm. and I decided to end it, uh, which is so hard because you spend so long trying to get an agent and there's so much rejection along the way. And so it was really scary to end that relationship without, you know, having another one lined up. So I was very much kind of just back in the trenches at that point. Um, so I just started to kind of cold query again, but I had learned from my past mistakes and I started to, I started with just like, I think a dozen agents, uh, my top agents and um, the manuscript ended up getting quite a few bites. And um, then I think I ended up with like three or four offers of representation. Um, I remember doing like the, I was working as a teacher at the time. And so during my lunch break, I took the agent phone calls to <laughs> discuss the manuscript. <laughs> and I was like sweating so much. Oh, no. <laughs> sure. I was like, I was like stumbling <laughs> my words and everything. Cause Aww. I was so nervous. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, like I remember the phone being like slippery in my hand. <laughs> oh. I was like sweating so much. And, um, I ended up going with Erin Harris, who is with Folio, and she's my mm -hmm. agent now, and she's been my agent since 2014, 2015, and wow, she sold okay. We'll Never Be Apart, yeah, about a year later. Amazing. Yay! Um, yeah. And We'll Never it Be is... Apart came out in 2015, correct? Yes, yeah, so I must have signed with, we did about a year and a half of work on it. She's like, an, she's an editorial agent. Mm -hmm. Um so she uh, really helped me revise. And I think we revised, gosh, five or six times um, before going out on submission. So I must have signed with her like early, late or late 2013. Oh, okay. 
Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, it is, it's not easy to sort of leave your first agent, mm-hmm. but I'm always like so sort of excited when authors are willing to talk about it um, in public because mm-hmm. I feel like just a couple of years ago, it was something that people never talked about mm-hmm. at all. And like now it's a lot more sort of easy to find information on what it's like to like go to your second agent and, um, and sort of take away the stigma of that, right? Because yeah. there's there's a lot of pressure put on getting your first agent. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, like, romanticizing yeah. of that relationship mm-hmm. for new authors. So definitely thank you for, for sharing that mm-hmm. story with us. And um, hopefully if there's any authors out there who are having a hard time with their agent right now and want to leave but are sort of... Mm, scared to leave because it feels like starting over Mm -hmm. I would say that you know Mm -hmm. a lot of times that feeling of starting over is actually the beginning of your career for real yeah that's what it was like for me when I left my first agent and and went to my second agent that's when my career like truly began Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, so definitely don't let yourself uh to hold yourself back if if you feel like it's the right thing to do um Mm -hmm. for sure and so you know, I think what's really um, cool about your career so far is that you have three books out and they're all different genres, even though they're all young adult, um, which, you know, I'm always love talking about this because I'm a person who's always interested in, in writing in different genres. So um, for people who don't know, there's Will Never Be a Part, which is a psychological thriller. There's Empress of All Seasons, which is a young adult fantasy. And there's your most recent book, which is a uh, bestseller, <laughs> which <Woo-hoo>! is <laughs> woo, which is Tokyo Ever After, which is a contemporary book uh, pitched as Crazy Rich Asians meets The Princess Diaries. So I would just love to kind of um, dive into your thought process and your writing process of what made you decide to try all these different genres in a row and was that a hard process for you? Yeah. So it kind of, from, I think, an outsider perspective, it looks like my writing career has kind of been disjointed because I've jumped genres. Um, but when I think about it and I approach it from, you know, it's as a reflection of my like own personal journey, um, it makes a lot of sense, I think, um, at least to me. So I started out writing... Um, uh, psychological thrillers, which I was really into reading at the time. And the I casted the protagonist as white because that was kind of before, it was right on the crest, the cusp of the, like the We Need Diverse Books movement. Mm-hmm. And I really believe that I wouldn't get published if I didn't have a white protagonist. Um, and that's why I did that with the with We'll Never Be Apart. Um, after We'll Never Be Apart, I began to write um, with uh, Japanese-American protagonists because essentially, like, the We Need Diverse Books movement gave me permission to do that. Mm-hmm. And I actually wrote another psychological thriller. And I had signed for We'll Never Be Apart a two-book contract. And I was going to submit that uh, second psychological thriller to my publisher as as, as part of fulfilling the contract mm-hmm. and uh, they passed on it. So I wrote actually a whole new psychological thriller um, and they decided they didn't like it. Um, and they said, no, thank you. Write another book essentially. Um, and I actually, I didn't know that like that could happen. <laughs> so 
So that was pretty Aww. devastating. Um, and that's why I decided to really pivot. So um, I decided to go in an entirely new direction and write a fantasy novel because I had also started reading a lot more fantasy at that time. And I was also really reconnecting with some of my Japanese roots. So it made sense to me to combine those two things. So um, a new genre that I was reading and loving a lot and also my own personal journey of reconnecting with my Japanese roots and Empress of All Seasons is a Japanese inspired fantasy. Um, and then building on that with Tokyo Ever After, it made sense then for me to kind of like jump from um, I've kind of explored the history of my culture and now I want to do something more in the contemporary realm and um, reflect on my experiences as a teen, as a Japanese American teen. And that's kind of where Tokyo Ever After started. That makes so much that's sense. So cool. And I love how like <laughs> each part of your journey, like really did reflect, you know, your personal journey or writing journey in that moment, uh, which makes each book kind of personal to you, which makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. And, that, and that's not easy. It's not easy jumping from genre to genre. I think that's like, takes yeah, skill. It's admirable. I always talk about how, I don't know how people write <laughs> contemporary because I need to make stuff disappear and spells need to happen um so i admire contemporary writers a lot <laughs> what would you do if the world's biggest k-pop idol asked you to prom elena sue and robbie Choi used to be inseparable until he moved back to south korea with his family but before he left he promised to come back and take elena to prom Seven years later, Robbie is part of the biggest K-pop group in the world, and Elena wouldn't be caught dead at prom, which makes it all the more surreal when Robbie shows up on her doorstep to keep that long-ago promise. And now Elena doesn't know what's worse, the hate she's getting from Robbie's fans, or the fact that she thinks she's falling for him. From the author of the internationally best-selling Gumiho duology comes Once Upon a K-Prom, a hilarious and heartfelt rom-com that brings the glamour and drama of the K-pop world straight to high school. Um, so let's dive into your most recent book, um, which is Tokyo Ever After. For anyone who hasn't heard about this book, even though I'm, I would be shocked because it's such a good book and everyone's talking about it. Um, can you give us a quick summary of what it's about? Sure. So Tokyo Ever After is all about uh, Japanese teen Azumi Tanaka, and she's grown up in a small, mostly white uh, northern California town with her single mom. Um, Izumi has always wondered about her father and where she comes from, and with the help of um, an amazing best friend, she discovers that her father is really the crown prince of Japan, which makes her a princess. Um, yeah, and pretty soon she finds herself in Japan to meet the father that she's always wanted to know and, you know, and live the life that she's always dreamed of. Awesome. That is so cool. I, I see one of your blurbs. Um, says Mia Thermopolis step aside because <laughs> it really does it really does remind me of like Princess Diaries but like obviously I would want to read sorry Princess Diaries but I would want to read this one more just because I like the I like the Japanese <laughs> aspect of it <laughs> um, were you inspired at all by kind of like those more you know classic like girl finds out she's a princess stories Mm -hmm. I was, and that's what I read 
you know, when I was younger too, but I never really saw myself in those stories because they always had um, white heroines. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just, I wanted to recast myself in the stories that I always loved. <laughs> Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I love that. I love that so much. Mm -hmm. Um, so another amazing, cool thing was that you, your book was chosen for Reese's book club, which yes, like, so what I'm just curious, this is, this might just be a me question, but like (laughs) what goes into being chosen for like such a, such a publicly visible book club, Mm -hmm. like, do, do, do different things happen behind the scenes or like, do you get to do anything really cool? Yeah. I mean, we, so I found out the book published in May and I believe I found it in January or February that it had been selected. So I had to actually sit on the news for like, well, over a month, however many months. That ah. it was, like, right? <laughs> yeah. For a few months. Um, And there was a lot, I mean, there's a lot that goes into it. You know, they have a large social media platform Mm -hmm. um, and they really want to engage with, you know, to connect the, the author with the audience. Um, So there are, you know, there are a lot of social media commitments that came up with it that were so much fun. And it was so neat to see uh, people's responses to Tokyo Raptor and, and how they were connecting with it. That is so cool. I love that. And it kind of, it's kind of nice because obviously the book came out during the Panini. So at least it was a way for you to connect with readers. Yeah. Yeah. I was slightly terrified um, because I remember when we had like our first marketing meeting at Flatiron and it was right when the pandemic was starting and everyone was like, you know, we have enough time and this should all be over by then. <laughs> oh, gosh. I remember saying that so yes. many times. Yeah. They were like, you know, we're, it's your publication is a uh, year and a half away. This will all be over, you know. And then it just, like, kept going. Like, we've been living in this perpetual emergency for the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really scary. And I had kind of um, – what's the word I'm looking for? I'd kind of uh, – resigned myself, resigned myself to thinking like, this book is going to come out, but it's not going to really do anything because it's going to come out during a pandemic. And I don't even know, people are panicking and I don't even think they're reading right now or they're going to be reading. Um, So I remember really having to like lower my expectations. Um, But I was actually, you know, the book community really showed up strong, I feel like during the pandemic. and it's it's been really great. That's so good. Yeah, that's so good to hear. I think there's been so many sort of sad pandemic mm-hmm. related stories that it's nice to hear uh, when people have done well because people were reading a lot, yeah. you know. Um, and some debuts did sort of um, benefit from that, yeah. but not everybody, right? Because a lot of people were reading like classics and like books that like mm-hmm. were already super duper bestsellers. <laughs> um but we were just talking before that there's in person stuff happening again and it feels a little fake. Yeah, it's like it's really gonna happen. <laughs> it it doesn't feel real uh, quite yet, but um 
hopefully we'll be able to spend time together in the book world yeah, soon. Yeah. And uh, people who like debut during the pandemic will be able to have events and stuff. And that will be really cool to see as well. Yeah. Yeah. I should add in the caveat. I know my book was fortunate because it had a large marketing push and then it had other really amazing, but also lucky things that happened, like getting, you know, selected for the book club and, you know, getting selected for the Indie Next list, all that kind of stuff, um, you know, worked in my favor, but I do know, you know, other authors that came out um, and uh, and didn't have such a great experience. But I do believe uh, there's always more chances in publishing. Um, my first two books, they, they did okay. They didn't do super great like Tokyo Ever After did. Um, and I was kind of, I feel like I had been taught that like you only get one chance you know, mm -hmm. but there really are multiple chances in publishing. I, I believe that. Um, and yeah. That's such a good thing to hear and to tell people yeah. because I feel like so much pressure mm -hmm. is put on your debut. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't break out immediately, then it's never going to happen for you. And I think a lot of people truly believe that deep down and it's really great to dispel that idea because it's like, no, you can still sort of blow up later on. Like it happens so much. I think that people a lot of times just focus on whatever the last project you have yeah. out is. And like they'll assume that that's been your mm -hmm. career up until then. Um, I see that happening a lot with Holly Black. What? Uh, I feel like, every, yes, like I feel like a lot of people are like, are like yeah she's always been because her first books when they came out they were not as like huge yeah. not like New York Times bestselling books right like they're beloved and especially now uh, but she didn't have an agent when her first book came out even and a lot of people don't realize that and like they're just like yeah Holly Black Cruel Prince she's always been like super famous right and it's like no not always actually <laughs> um, it takes time to like build a career sometimes um, and that's still super valid and um, and there's a lot to be said for like having a career like that and not having the pressure of like being an instant bestseller and having to feel like you always have to live up to that too um, but but I, I, I love those examples to sort of uh, give people so that they can know that it's it, 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 a career, successful career is like, don't only look one way. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I said, my my first two books did OK. And, um, you know, they found an audience, but they didn't do as well as Tokyo Ever After. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I think that's kind of, you know, it's kind of when you reinvent yourself. Um, but I do remember feeling mm -hmm. that with will never be a part, like um, being really hard on myself and, you know, when it didn't get a great review or it wasn't like an instant bestseller, um, you know, you have all of these, you know, illusions of grandeur, I feel like when you're first published um, and then publishing like slowly breaks them down <laughs> very cruelly, but um but yeah, there's there's always second chances, and if not, I mean, just reinvent yourself. And I I was thinking with uh, with will never be a part. I was like, I'm just gonna start writing under a pseudonym. Then you can come mm -hmm. up with lots of different names for yourself too. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. That's so funny. I really do. I really do like that kind of you know, you know, your journey doesn't have to be over. There's always options. Mindset mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. sure. Um, so, which which like obviously you have great 
advice for that because you've tried a lot of different things like you've had more than one agent you've had more than one publisher at this point um so you've been in the industry i would say like you you've been in it long enough to be like you know you're you're in it you're a career author now like um so Mm -hmm. do you have kind of like any advice for like newer authors to like give them like that boost they might need right now as they try to break into the industry yeah yeah I keep a couple different sticky notes on my desk that I've accumulated over the years and one of them says don't give up which is you know kind of a it's a cliche but um I wrote it to myself after my second psychological thriller was passed on by my publisher Mm -hmm. uh because that was a really low point for me um And the other sticky note says fail and fail better, uh, which just kind of reminds me that there's successes in the failures, right? Like Mm -hmm. I I had to go back and recognize that that second book that I wrote that got passed on uh, was a success. I mean, I had written a whole book, you know, and even though it wasn't going to be published, I had still accomplished something. I'd uh, sharpened my craft. I'd come up with different characters. I had created a whole world. And so there are successes in the perceived failures. Um, and those are the two things that I try to remember along the way. And the last thing I always uh, tell myself is that I'm not going to let anyone uh, tell me if I can write or not. Because um, I think, you know, like, again, going back to getting that manuscript rejected, I felt like I wasn't meant to be a writer. Mm-hmm. Um and we just don't need to wait for permission to write. If you love to write, then you should write. Yes. I'm snapping my fingers at that. We don't need yeah. permission. To oh my write. gosh. Get out of here. <laughs> Your BTS obsession. Don't sue me, I swear BTS. to God. I should never have shown you this group. <laughs> um, oh, I can't. Um, I really... Back to back to the wonderful advice that we just got about publishing. I I do I really uh, made you flustered. I'm so flustered now. I really love that last piece of advice because I I've I've often had to remind myself that um, Mm -hmm. it's never a waste of time to write any book that we've written, even if that book doesn't get published. Because of yeah. what you just said, like you hone your craft, you learn world building better, you learn something better because you've mm-hmm. sat down at your at your laptop or computer and you've done the thing. Because writing is mm-hmm. one of those skills that you only get better when you keep on doing it. Um, well, I guess all skills are <laughs> writing is a skill, and you only get. <laughs> let me re- let me replay that. This I'm not editing this out. This is all staying in the episode. <laughs> But you guys know what I mean. It's a skill. Mm-hmm. You get better when you keep doing it. And and I think that your advice like really highlights that very well. And so thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Of course. I'm still so flustered. <laughs> <laughs> I love that my my remix of a BTS song made you feel so it's many just, things. I can't. I can't. I can't. Anyway. Um <laughs> Let, so let me let me take the question I just asked you and flip it over and say, since you've been in the industry for a few years now, what's a myth about publishing that you wish would like go away forever? Uh, I think, you know, I already touched on this, but the 
One of the biggest myths in publishing is that you only get one chance. There's so much pressure that I felt when my debut came out. Um, and I really thought that if it wasn't an overnight success, that I was going to kind of fade away. Um, but then I, can, I had to realize that, you know, if I wanted to write, then I should keep writing and I should keep at it. And it's, it's work. Writing is really hard work, but um, you do get, get more chances than one. That's thank you for saying that. I feel like I feel yeah. like everyone needs to hear that. Every writer needs to hear that at regular intervals mm -hmm. in our career. Yeah. <sighs> because publish it's so comforting. It is like publishing loves shiny new things, but like publishing can shove it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sorry, I said it. I said what I said. <laughs> Um, but yeah, that's so that's so good to hear. And, and I really do hope that some people who are listening do get some inspiration from your journey, because like you're not just saying the words, you're showing it with with your career and your actions like you kept on going, you didn't give up. And like people who think that every New York Times bestseller is a debut or an overnight success, um, really, are, they're not paying attention or they've been fooled <laughs> by, mm -hmm. you know, the shiny outliers. Um <laughs> So I really, I, I really appreciate you coming on to Write or Die and sharing your story with all of our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. Of course, of course. Happy to. All right, Emiko. Uh -huh. Everyone who is on Write or Die tells us their most embarrassing publishing related story sure. or something they wish they'd known before they started. Mm -hmm. You could do either or. You can do both. It is up to you. Okay. Uh, I'll do both. Um, so the one thing I Yay, wish... my favorite. <laughs> both is our favorite. Both is our favorite. I have so many things that I wish I knew before I started, but I'll narrow them down to just a couple. So um, I wish I had known, like, how slow everything moves. Uh, I didn't realize that it takes, like, a year, sometimes more, to, like, in the production chain for a book to come out. Um, I remember telling my parents that, like, I sold a book. And then they were like, oh, great. I can't wait to read it. And I was like, well, you have to wait <laughs> a year and a half to read it. Um, so it feels like a big accomplishment when you sell a book. But then it's like you don't really have anything to show for it until, you know, a year later. Um, mm -hmm. And I wish I had taken, you know, I remember someone telling me to work on the next thing, like after I had published my novel. I mean, after I had sold it. And I kind of. I, I uh, hung around for a couple months and didn't start working on the next thing. Um, and I think that made me kind of hyper-focused hyper on, uh, you know, the novel that was in production. And I, it would have been healthier, I think, for me mentally to, like, shift and focus on a new project. Um, and that's something that I've done since I published Empress of All Seasons is I've always just moved on to the next one. Um, and my most embarrassing moment... Um, <laughs> I sent an email to my editor, uh, which sending emails to your editor is kind of scary anyways, and I was still early in my career. And I had meant to write, you know, popping in here to say something, and instead I wrote pooping in here. <laughs> and I remember oh, no. I was so mortifying. It's mortifying on several different levels. Like one it's mortifying just on like the gross, like potty humor level. And then the second level is like, I'm a writer. Like I'm supposed to be good at the writing. And I didn't like check over that email before I sent it. Uh, so I was super embarrassed. 
There you go. I love it. I love that story so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Carvel loves potty humor. I do too. Yeah. I do too. I had a, like a bunch of potty humor in, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was in Tokyo Ever After. And um, I remember like my agent reading it and being like, do we really need like two, you know, back to back like fart and poop jokes? And I was like, well, <laughs> yes. kind of. I think I took yeah. that we- one. <laughs> We do need them, we actually. Do. They're essential to my story. Yeah, part of the like character's set. journey. Yeah. It is. <laughs> it's, essential. it's an essential part of her journey. Yeah. It's always so funny. I think I so, too. Arabelle. Yeah. It is, it is funny. It is funny. It is funny. <laughs> Just. <laughs> um, okay. Well, anyway. Gosh, this ep- this episode is really got gotten to me um Anika, thank you so much for, again for coming on to write or die it's been it's been an actual delight i my my cheeks hurt from like laughing and smiling so much yeah thank oh. you thank you very much for having me yeah of course yay i was like she hates us <laughs> Do you want to tell our listeners where they can find you on the internet? Uh, I do. Can we pause for a minute? Because I don't remember yeah, sure. my Instagram handle. Uh, so my uh, Instagram handle is Emiko Jean Books. Um, and that's where I post uh, the most regular, regularly, regular. And uh, you can also find me on emikojean.com. Awesome. Perfect. And we'll have all of the information in the show notes so everyone can go get the 20 prerequisite copies that you mm-hmm. have to get uh, of Tokyo Ever After. Yeah, please. Thank you so much, Emiko, for being <laughs> on the <laughs> – thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, it was it was a blast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I had fun. Thanks for listening to Write or Die. Be sure to check out Wicked Fox by Kat Cho. And Ghost Squad by Clarabelle A. Ortega. And while you're at it, make sure to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. See you next time, wordies. And don't forget to spread the word.